You know, they talk about a person who's willing to give you the shirt off of their back. Let me tell you what your preacher did. He gave me the Bible off of his shelf and the belt off of his waist because I forgot both of those things. I'm saying that out loud so that collectively one of us will remember that I need to give him back his Bible and his belt tomorrow before I leave. Our premise in this weekend is, and, and this was really born of an assignment that I got at Polishing the Pulpit several years ago, and it was with young adults, and the series was entitled, There is a Text for That. And in that particular series, there were several attitudes that uh, we directed individuals to texts of scripture in order to examine what God's word has to say in sections of scripture about those things. Now I'm not preaching any of those lessons this weekend, but that same premise I believe applies to everything. If you begin to think about great text on any given subject, there are some, and we'll be looking at some of those with regard to a variety of areas of our life. And remember we're building a composite we are looking at all that Scripture has to say in different areas. So we're going to be in the Old Testament. We were in the Old Testament last time. Uh, as a spoiler alert, we're going to be in the Old Testament in this hour. In the next two hours, we're going to be in the New Testament. We're going to look in a more broad view in the Bible class tomorrow. And then we're going to look back in the Old Testament in our worship hour and then in the New Testament in the afternoon. As we examine these different areas of Scripture... We're going to be looking at different periods of time. Although two today are going to be in the epistles, we're going to be looking at a variety of other materials of Scripture to help us to look into areas of our life. Last night we looked at personal renewal and personal revival and restoration. If a church is going to do that, it begins first with me. And so in my own dedication and consecration, I've got to look at how the Word of God is going to drive that in my life. That's what we saw last night. This morning we're going to look more in a congregational viewpoint as it relates to what God wants us as a church to be doing with regard to our purpose. You might file this in your mind in the general area of evangelism. Although evangelism is going to be touched on in other lessons, we're going to look specifically at that in our lesson this morning. Kathy and I have had the opportunity, the privilege to go to Israel. We've been three times in the last two years. And the first two times we looked at more of the traditional sites and the traditional areas that folks go to on tours. But this time we wanted to do things a little bit different. And so what we wanted to do was to go to places that were off the beaten path. Places that are not so widely visited. And so that opened up some very neat opportunities. One of the places that we went on one of the days we were there is the ancient city of Shiloh. And that city was of interest to me. It was in the West Bank, so it's a little bit more restricted to get there. You might say not quite as safe as some of the parts of Israel are. But in that area, you find a place of great significance. If you think about the conquest period, as the people come in and they settle the land, this is the place where the Ark of the Covenant first comes to rest. And the Ark of the Covenant is going to remain there for 400 years. It's going to remain there until the city of Shiloh is destroyed and the Ark of the Covenant is taken. You remember it's on the day that Eli dies as the high priest of Israel. 
And as you look at this city of Shiloh, it is one of the largest archaeological sites in the country. It's an ongoing dig. It's impressive. Uh, Members of the Lord's Church have been a a part of that. It's been an an ongoing project for several years. And it's sprawling. It's massive. And as you walk throughout that huge complex, you get out to what is the outer edge of the original city. And it's imposing. If you'll see the picture that I took there, there are sections of the wall that were as almost as wide as 20 feet in areas. And as you look at how that city was constructed by the Canaanites, it was constructed in such a way that three of the four sides of that city up on that hill were protected by sheer and rocky cliffs. And where it was not, you had a wall that that must have been seen to be impenetrable. So now I want you to imagine this is just the ruins of it. What it must have looked like on the day that the spies came into that city as part of their survey of the land and what it appeared like to them. You remember that in their reporting back to Moses in what God had given them to do that the, the spies say, hey, the land in which you sent us to spy it out, it is a exceedingly good land. Yes, it has uh, uh, milk and honey and here are the fruits of it. But the people who live there are strong and they're great and the, the cities are fortified. And we saw moreover the descendants of Anak there. I think so often we give these spies a hard time. But I want you to see them as they would have seen themselves. They have been under the thumb of Egyptian rule for 400 years. And as a result of that, they understood themselves to be an ethnic minority for all of that time. They were immigrants. They were poor. They were powerless. And so they saw themselves that way. You know that the Egyptians saw them that way. So can you imagine as they're standing around and they're giving a report, not just to Moses, but to the entire congregation of Israel, Caleb stands up first after they say that preliminary report. And it's a little bit more positive report. It's not as negative as it's going to get. And Caleb says, hey, let's go up at once and possess it for we're well able to overcome it. Oh, and then that unleashes the full fury of their negativity. In Numbers 13, 31 through 33, they begin their litany of their negative or evil report. They say it's a land that devours the inhabitants. And they say that we are as grasshoppers in our own side, and so we were in their side. But think about this. God is telling them, I want you to go, and I want you to take a a, a nation, a, a territory that has imposing cities like Jericho and Shiloh. And you don't have any military preparation and you have limited resources and I want you to get it done. I wonder how tempted we would have been to have been in the camp with the ten rather than to have been over there with Joshua and Caleb who said we can do this. To show you what I'm talking about, I want you to think about the statistics as it relates to the state of Georgia. It's a little better in Kentucky, I'm finding. I've, I, as I told uh, the elders last night, I've never lived and preached in the true Bible Belt, in the New Testament church sense of the word. And uh, it's impressive to me that I live in a state of about four and a half million people. And there are 50,000 uh, individuals who claim to be adherents. Um, and as they do statistics, that's a little bit different from members, but folks who would claim I'm a member of the Church of Christ. 
And as you begin to break that down, and unfortunately the statistics that I got from broader bases included not just Churches of Christ, but all those that would have been originally a part of the Restoration Movement before sin and worship divided the body of Christ. But about 6% of the people who have a religious affiliation in the state of Kentucky claim to be members of Churches of Christ and, and uh, also Christian Church and Disciples of Christ. It's a small number when you even take it that way. If you step back and you ask what is the percentage of people who claim to be those versus those who have no religious affiliation at all, then that number changes. It's a smaller number than those who say, I don't claim to be anything. Now let's, let's apply that to the state of Georgia. If I have my statistics right, as of 2018, there are 10.5 million people in this state. A great many of them are right here in this area. And again, the best and the most uh, recent statistics that I have are 21st century Christian. And what they say is that that number, total number, but this is members of the churches of Christ only, but that's all stripes from one end to the other, is about 50,000 If you do the math on that, that is about one half of 1% of this state who are members of churches of Christ. Now, I I did not get another statistic that I was going to get before I got up here. How, How large, what's the membership of this congregation? Say it again. Somebody just say that loud enough for me to hear it. 300, about 300. Okay, that's what I would have guessed. So 300 people make up this congregation. And if you think about how many people there are in this world, the latest statistic from world population uh, graphs and statistics, 7.7 billion people. I'm not even going to try to do the math on that, but I know it's point zero and a bunch of other zeros before you ever get to another number. And God is saying, I want you to take this territory. This territory is the earth, the world. I want you to conquer. Now, it's not the kind of conquering that they were doing in the days of the Israelites. It's not a physical or literal warfare that we're engaged in. We know that from passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 4. That the weapons of our warfare are not physical or carnal but divinely powerful to the destruction of fortresses. And so God says, I want you to use my tools. I want you to use my resources. And I want you to reach out there and I want you to help to conquer this world's heart in every way that you can. Now, but here's the the, the message that we've got to get. I don't know how much good you're going to do directly in Indonesia or in Finland or down in Argentina. You may do some residual or second-handed good through mission efforts and any mission trips that you may take. But the part of this world that you can most influence is this area right around you. And, and I know when I say that, I know that you're coming from a lot of different places in a megapolis. But what I'm talking about are your friends and your neighbors and your family. God's saying that's your greatest sphere of influence. And so even though that title slide says taking a city for Christ, I want to put that in air quotes. That city is that area where you can most be influential. The places where you go to school, where you find yourself in the workplace, where you find yourself in your personal relationships where you're willing and exerting influence. So how do you take 
a city? How do you take a community for Christ? I'm going to do something very unusual. I am going to use as our text Numbers chapter 14 in order for us to answer that question. Now, in Numbers chapter 14, you have a people who are rebelling against the will of God. It's the decisions of the people in Numbers chapter 14 that's going to create that 40-year wandering in which everybody who's of an adult age outside of Joshua and Caleb are going to fall in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. But I still think there are four elements as we examine it and as we learn from it that we can take and that we can use to help us to have a zeal for evangelism and an enthusiasm for winning souls. So with that in mind, and with our text being Numbers 13 to kind of give us the background, but giving us Numbers chapter 14, there are four principles that I'd like for us to look at. The first one is, if you're going to take a city for Christ, you have got to have faith in the character and in the promises of God. When you look at the, the report of those majority spies, and they come and they tell about how terrible it's going to be to try to take this land, you'll notice that the congregation reacts. They weep and they sigh and they moan all night long. And as they are, are, are faced with this task that God, through his leaders, Moses and Joshua and Caleb and Aaron, when they tell them, this is what I want you to do, when they say we're not going to do it, they're not just saying no to those leaders. They are saying no to God. They're saying to God, we find you unfair and untrustworthy and cruel. When you consider the fact that what they say in verse 3 is, is why has the Lord brought us to this land that we may fall by the sword? They're reflecting a basic lack of trust in who God is. Joshua and Caleb are urging the people to have faith in God, to keep his word and to do his will, verse 8, but the congregation is unwilling to follow their lead. Now I want you to consider what happens when we lose faith in the character and in the promises of God. It's three things that happen in our context here. When we lose faith in the power of God's character and in the power of God's promises, we first begin to have our decisions being driven by our emotions. If you look at verse 1 and verse 2, they weep and they cry all night long and they get very dramatic in their responses. Look at verse 2 at the hyperbole that they use. But second, I'd have you to notice with me that when we uh, find ourselves lacking in our trust in the power of God's character and His promises, we'd resort to grumbling. In verse 2, they begin to murmur and they begin to complain about the task that God has given them and the leadership that God has given to them. And then we begin to fall prey to a spirit of fatalism. This is not going to work. We're not going to be able to be successful with regard to this. This is what happens when we're led by our emotions, when we're led by a lack of faith in the promises of God. Now I want to turn that around for a moment. What we're doing is we are using the example of these people who lacked faith to be a driver for us to be evangelistic in our society and in our circumstances today. There are two places in the New Testament that tell us that the Old Testament was written for our learning. One is Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. The things that were written aforetime were written for our learning uh, that, that we through patience and consolation of the scripture might have hope. 
And, and that's a little bit more of a feel-good passage. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, the Bible tells us that these things happen unto them as an example for us upon whom the ends of the world have come. They're written for our admonition. Now, that's a little different from the Romans passage because of what Paul has just said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 beginning at verse 1. These folks are an example of how not to be. When you look at all that list of things that the Apostle Paul says that they did during that generation, he says that they were guilty of, uh, of, uh, of, of lusting after things. They were guilty of idolatry. They were guilty of fornication. They were guilty of tempting Christ. And they were guilty of murmuring. And Paul says as the result of this, they're an example for us. And so Paul lifts that from Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And he says, Corinth, I'm giving this to you so that you will know better and so that you will do better. And of course, by extension, he's doing that for us. Why is Numbers 14 in the Bible? Numbers 14 is in the Bible because God's people are so often prone to follow the example of those folks. And I get that and understand that we all live that as members of the body of Christ. It's such a mountain to climb, we begin to ask ourselves, how do I even address this? How do I approach th this? And leadership does the same thing from a congregational level. How, how do we do this? Sometimes that's part of the problem. We base our budgets based on what we think that we're able to accomplish. We set our goals based on what we think that we can do. And yet what God is calling on us to do is, after all the resources are exhausted and what you can do, you can see me go to work and see what I'm able to accomplish. So as we look at, at congregations that are not striving to grow, who aren't striving to do what God has laid out for us as our task, you're going to find the same things as we see here. When a congregation is not striving to take that ambitious goal as you are going, take the gospel into all the world, what happens is, is that our, our decisions tend to be emotionally based. And that leads us to problems at both extremes. If we're emotionally driven in our objectives, we'll find ourselves saying, well, what do we got to do in order to reach the community? And we begin to compromise on what God's Word has to say in very basic areas with regard perhaps to worship or to gender roles or the plan of salvation. Or we find ourselves in protection mode and so what we do is we begin to make tradition on a par with law and God's law and, and, and so we set up rules that He hasn't made. But you see, the, both of these are two sides of the same coin. It's an emotionally driven decision. Or we'll find ourselves grumbling. You know, when you have your hand to the plow, it's a little harder to serve as the analyst and the critic. And the Apostle Paul tells us that that's our task, that's our challenge. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, he says, Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and harmless in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. This is an evangelism passage. And Paul ties evangelism to conquering the grumbling and complaining. So often in the local context, those who are the loudest critics are the ones whose hands are the farthest away from the plow. And so God tells us together that we find ourselves more successful when we're at work without the time to focus on the problems that we see that others have. And then 
there's that spirit of fatalism that happens when we lose sight of the, the character and the promises of God. That fatalism that says, we can't. We tried that before, and it didn't work. Yeah, but... You see, those are the words of people who are not factoring God into the equation. And so the other side of that is what helps us to take a city for Christ. We let the Bible drive our decisions in all that we say and all that we do. We have a positive spirit that says that we're going to encourage one another and not grumble and complain with regard to that. And we have a spirit of optimism that says that whatever is within the scope of God's will is within the realm of possibility. i give you an example of a congregation that challenges the rest of us. I already alluded to them a moment ago. I don't know if any of you have ever worshipped with the Jacksonville congregation. It's not that far from here. It's a congregation of about 200 people. And if you ever go in Jacksonville, Alabama, by the way, if you ever go and you worship with them, you say, how ordinary, how unremarkable they are on some levels. There's nothing that stands out and says that they should be doing what they're doing. But they are responsible for sending house to house and heart to heart across this country. And you measure the number of copies that are sent out in the millions and the number of folks that have been baptized in the hundreds since this began. Polishing the pulpit, 5,000 and over 300 people attended there this year. Who knows the ripple effect that that's having on our brotherhood through the efforts that's being made by this small congregation with only three elders... And then you think about events like are going on today. I don't know if we all feel a little bit, if you know about the door knocking. We're not door knocking. We're in here. But we're, we're doing good things. But there are, I think, 550 congregations, including Lehman Avenue, who are participating in this national door knocking day. And you begin to think about the efforts that have been spawned. There, there's a, a latest effort of evangelism workshops that they are sponsoring that are taking place all over the country. And I mention that as an encouragement to us to say what is it that we can do when we begin to believe in the character and the promises of God. I've talked to those elders and they're humble men who just say we're just trying to, to, to walk through the doors that God opens we can take a city, we can take a country, we can take a world for Christ when we begin to factor in what God is able to do because of who God is and because of what God has promised that He will do. So as we think about where we are and what we can do, is God also going to work that way in our lives? I say that He is. But then second, if we're going to take for a city for Christ, we've got to have families that are led by faith and not by fears. We know what happens on this occasion. In verse 3, we see that the whole congregation is assembled. There are men and there are women and there are children. And it's the men who speak up. And they see defeat for themselves. We're going to fall by the sword. And they see danger for their families. They're going to become plunder. And as a result of that, they say, look, what we need to do is just go back to Egypt. Let's form up and let's walk back to the place where we've gone. Because it would be better for us to be in Egypt than to be out here in the wilderness going toward the promised land. And I think every time I read that, had they forgotten what Egypt was like? And when you think about what had happened in Egypt, do you remember how the book of Exodus begins? In Exodus 2, 23 and 24, here are the people of God and they're sighing and they're crying and they're moaning out to God to send them a deliverer. 
And so God sends them Moses and he's now walking them out toward the place that he had promised as far back as their father Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And, and the nation was also, the, it was a spiritual nation. It was a physical nation. And together God was saying, this is where I want you to go. And so the family unit needed to walk together toward what God had provided for them so that they could reach and impact and change the world, which they will eventually do through Christ. And I think about what God has placed before us. The church is going to be strong based on the strength of families. And, and, and I realize, you know, my boys are 25 and 23 and 21. They're free of our home. They're, I shouldn't say it that way. That sounds kind of like we were trying to get rid of them. We weren't, but they're no longer there. They're on their own, as we said last night, trying to adult. But I remember how d- tough it was to try to raise them. In a world that did not share their values. And, and for those who are raising their children right now, I believe you're facing tests. You're facing challenges like no generation alive has had to face. And, and the question is, how do you respond to that? What do you do in the face of a world that doesn't line up with your values? And, and there are different ways that we might approach that. And I think there are, are different choices and, and we all are choosing one or the others of these. When we think about those choices, one of the choices is that we're going to conform, and you just have to, we're just going to imagine that's up there, I don't know where it went, but some conform to the culture. You can't look at their mentality, you can't look at their dress, you can't look at the way that they speak and the lifestyle that they live and the decisions that they make and tell anything different from them that you do from the world. They look just like the world. And so that's a decision to be led by fear rather than by faith. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 16, Peter says, there's this fiery trial that's come upon you and you've got to make a decision about what you're going to do. And Peter says, but if any of you suffer as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in this name, let him glorify God. We find ourselves in a place where the culture is pushing on us to think and to act and to live a certain way. And, And so often we find ourselves conforming to that rather than being transformed by the renewing of our minds. But that second dot up there is there's some who isolate themselves from the culture. There's some who have, have, have so tightened the wagons around their family. They have so withdrawn themselves and so isolated themselves from the culture that they cannot do anything to make a difference in the society in which they live. The society doesn't even know that they're there. And this is also a decision to be led by fear rather than by faith. God doesn't want us totally withdrawn from our culture. And I want you to think about the early church. Here are the Christians and and they've been uh, um, flourishing and they've been growing and they've been fruitful. And from Acts chapter 2, even through personal problems. And then Stephen gets stoned. And as the result of this persecution that started because of Saul, they have to leave Jerusalem. And they're doing what God wants them to do anyway. They're going to Judea, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. But they engaged their neighbors even when they were on the run. It says that they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. And so that's not an option either. Conforming to the culture won't work. Isolating ourselves from the culture won't work. And so what we've got to do is we've got to engage. Engage the culture. See, I only put up the right answer up there. The other ones don't matter. God wants us involved. In the lives of those around us. And so here's the balancing act. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. There are people with messy lives 
that I know, and I'm not going to, to, to find myself away from them. I'm going to be integrated into their lives because God needs me to do that. And I'm going to show the compassion of Christ. I'm going to show them that Christ is alive and is in this world today, and He's in this world through the hands and the feet that we demonstrate. I'm going to speak well of the church publicly and privately. I'm going to make sure that when we're driving away from the assemblies on Sunday, that we're not having the elder and the elders and the preachers and the deacons and the other members as an appetizer for lunch. We're going to make sure that we speak well of the church. I, I talked to uh, a young lady who's no longer faithful to the church. I'm trying to ascertain why that is so often. That's a question that we have is why does somebody fall away and she said, when I was growing up, my mother just talked about the flaws and the hypocrisy and the inadequacies of the church. And I just didn't practice what she was doing in speech all along. We're faced with three choices, as I can see it. Maybe there are others. In how we can take a city for Christ, we can't conform to the culture. We can't isolate ourselves from the culture. We must engage the culture. We've got to have families that are led by faith and not led by fears because the decision to engage the culture is a faith decision. It's not a fear decision. And the folks in Numbers 14, they missed that. But the next generation, they get it. And look at what God does through them. But then third, if you're going to take a city for Christ, you've got to have forward-thinking leadership. Verse 3 through verse 9. Now, if you look at what's going on in Numbers 14, they want new leaders. They, they're trying to have a, a kind of an ad hoc committee where they're going to say, all right, let's appoint somebody else and let's go back to Egypt, where we came from. They wanted leaders who were going to lead them into danger and probably death. But look at the leaders that God had already given to them. They want to throw off the leaders that God had appointed for them, especially when you begin to look at the qualities of those leaders, especially as we look in Numbers chapter 14, that first of all, these leaders were humble. In verse 5, Caleb and Joshua, they fall on their faces before the congregation. There's this, this, this backlash against their decision to go into the land of Canaan despite all the obstacles that are there. And the leaders say, let's go do this. And the people begin to respond negatively and adversely and they fall on their faces. Thank God for humble leaders who say, look, we realize that this is all going to be done in, in, in accordance with God's will. And that's another thing we see about them. They were convicted. When they hear the response of the people, they tear their clothes. Solid leadership does not lick its finger and stick it to the wind of popular approval to see what the people want to do. Leadership means being out in front. If you look at the shepherds in John chapter 10 and the great shepherd, they're out there where the people can hear their voice and they lead them forward. But you'll also find that they were optimistic. Verse 7 and verse 8. The land which the Lord sent us out to spy it is an exceedingly good land. They didn't see walls. They didn't see giants. They saw milk and honey because they were optimistic leaders. They were also faith-filled leaders. Verse 8. We're able to do this. They, they looked at the circumstances and they saw that it was going to work out because they had faith in God and not fear of the people. And they were reverent. They said, only do not rebel against God and fear the people of this land. They saw the greatness of God and they honored that greatness. And also, they were visionary. 
They said their protection has been taken away from them. And God is with us. And if He's with us, we're going to be able to do this. When you think about the kind of leaders that God wants in order to take a city for Christ, it's these kind of leaders. Leaders that are humble. That say, we're nothing apart from God. But with God, what's outside the limits of possibility? Who are convicted, who say this is necessary. We've got to do this, and so let's do it. Those who are optimistic and say, oh, I can tell you a thousand reasons why it won't work, but here's one huge reason why it will work. And it's that faith-filled approach that's reverent with regard to God's will. And that causes one to be visionary. Now, I don't know if you know any, any uh, lazy boy linebackers or water cooler wide receivers. Uh, the, these individuals that are, are just so expert. They're, from the comfort of their lazy boy, they can sit there and they can see those four open wide receivers and they see that quarterback who makes millions of dollars who can't check down and find one of those guys. Never mind that there are 300-pound behemoths who can run a 4-6-40 who are closing down. They've got about two seconds to do all of that. They got it all figured out. And so then they wipe the, the Cheeto crumbs off of their pot belly and they go back into the kitchen and they get another snack during the commercials. What do we call those? Armchair quarterbacks. Armchair quarterbacks are not in the condition to play at the NFL level. Sometimes, sadly, some of the greatest experts when it comes to leadership spiritually are those who are not qualified to do that work. And that's not to say that elders are without reproach or beyond rebuke. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 20. They're imperfect men. But God has appointed a system of organization in this church. And it's, it involves the delegated authority from the great shepherd to those shepherds who will stand before him on the judgment day. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1 through verse 4. Forward thinking leadership. Who says what is the best? Talk about methods, not message. We're, there's a thus saith the Lord, there's no liberty. But in the, the realm of method, what can we do to make the old Jerusalem gospel relevant in the hearts and the minds of people in 2019? That's the kind of leadership that will take a city for Christ. There's one other element that I want to get to very quickly, and that is, if we're going to take a city for Christ, then we've got to fight the right adversary. In verse 10, do you notice what's happening here? They refuse to take on the enemy that God has placed before them, but instead they focus inwardly. And they say, we're going to fight these leaders. They're ready to stone Joshua and Caleb because they're focusing on the wrong foe. It's so easy for that to happen. I don't normally mention particular religious groups specifically, and I'm, I'm making a very specific example here. I don't think it's necessary for us to teach what we're trying to say, but everybody knows the name Westboro Baptist Church. They are infamous for the things that they do at funerals and in other places and the hateful way in which they behave. They are united together even as they attack the world. And that's terrible. And yet we find so often that a world that's united at where they are causes us, if we're not careful, we're not united together. We find ourselves inwardly striving and fighting and it keeps us from doing what God wants us to do. It's easy for us to get distracted as to who the foe is. Peter identifies him for us. 
He's the devil. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. And we're told to stand against him and we're told to fight him in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 through verse 17. If we're going to take a city for Christ, we've got to understand the united aim that we have, the objective to go out there together. Now most of you may know what that is that you see on the screen there. It's a Tasmanian devil. And for several years now, their population has been decimated. And scientists have been trying to look into how this carnivorous marsupial is, is, is being on the decline. And the way that they think that this devil to, facial tumor disease is being spread is very eye-opening. It's horrific. The way that this disease seems to be transmitted is through the bite of one devil to another. And so as they, and they're, they're notoriously ill-tempered, and in their ill-temper, they get into fights with one another, and they bite one another, and they are unwittingly causing their own demise. I think about the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 11, Paul says, I've heard from Chloe's household that there are quarrels among you. But in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 15, Paul says, But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you're not consumed one of another. That's what's happening in Numbers chapter 14. They're turning inward and there's strife and there's division within the, the, the ranks. And it kept them from going and doing what God told them that He wanted them to do. And if we're going to take a city for Christ, we've got to be united in our aim and our objective to stand together if there's problems, if there's difficulties within the body of Christ. That we're going to resolve those quickly so that we can get together in doing what God wants us to do. You know, that's true within a congregation. That is true within the entire brotherhood. That we've got to make sure that we're standing four square on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That we stand together whenever we can to try to, to address the objective that God has given to us. When you think about what happens in Numbers chapter 14, and you walk back to what happens in the book of Exodus... Here's what happens. God sends Moses in to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. Pharaoh stands against that, is not going to do that so God's power can be demonstrated. And through those ten plagues, finally after the tenth plague, God says, get out of here, go. Or Pharaoh says that and God leads them out. So they go out of the promised land. They go up on, on Mount Sinai having gone across the Red Sea. Miraculously parted. The people of Israel go through that. And the Egyptians trying to do the same thing are destroyed in that water. They're drowned. So God has led them out of the promised land in a miraculous way. He's led them across the Red Sea. And now he gets them up there. Uh, the Mount. He gives them the law in Exodus chapter 20. And he brings them right up to the cusp of the promised land. And he says, I want you to take the final few steps. And this is what's going on with those spies are sent into Canaan. And they come back and they say, we just don't have the faith to go those last few steps. Now that convicts me when I realize that God sent a Savior. And that Savior took care of the world's biggest problem. The only problem that persists after this life out into eternity. Jesus solved that problem. And then he established a church that he had in his mind from the eternity before time. And then he gave us marching orders that he knew we were capable of fulfilling. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He says, you can do this. 
He says, I've given you all of this. I have given you a word that perfectly reveals my will. I've given you a plan that works, the only plan that will. I want you to take the, the last few steps. Are you willing to take those steps? Well, we will. If we, if we can take from this chapter those principles that are found there. If we can have faith in the character and in the promises of God. If we can have families that are led by faith and who are not led by fear. If we can have forward thinking leadership. If we can focus on fighting the right foe. But you know, in our own lives, we've got to fight giants as well. We've got to fight the giant of commitment. Because there's so many things pressing on us that demand our time. The tyranny of the urgent in this life. We've got to fight the, the giant of sin. All of us are struggling in areas of our life with the sin problem. Even though Christ, is, with His blood, has taken care of that sin problem, like Paul in Romans 7, we continue to struggle. And then we've got to fight the giant of problems. As we're on our way to heaven and trying to take others with us, we've still got our problems. We've still got our economic problems. We've still got our health problems. We've still got our relationship problems that we're trying to work through. But our Lord is confident that we can, and not only that we can through His help, but that in conquering those things, we can still reach out to our friends, our neighbors, our family, that city that is nearest to us that we can influence. God left the Great Commission knowing full well who we were, what we could do, and what we could not do. And he believed that we would get it done, and more than that, he commanded that we get it done. And so let us have faith in the very promises of God and march out as Joshua and his generation did. Thank you very much for your kind attention. We'll dismiss.